Stanford University. Uh, my name is Seth Silverman, and I'm the program and proceedings coordinator for this conference. So we'll be spending the next day and a half um, on an important emerging trend in global affairs, uh, that of China's increasingly important role in international efforts to resolve some of the most dramatic human crises of the day. Um, remarkably, it was only 30 years ago last month that the U.S. and China established diplomatic relations. Few could have imagined the enormous changes that have taken place in these countries and on the global change since that time. But today we look at a world in which the 67th U.S. Secretary of State, Hillary Rodham Clinton, has just embarked on her first trip overseas uh, in this capacity to Asia, uh, acknowledging the crucial importance of cross-Pacific relations to U.S. foreign policy, especially looking ahead further into the 21st century. Serendipitously, uh, Senator Clinton arrives in Beijing, an essential stop on her trip uh, tomorrow, providing the perfect backdrop to our conversations over the next two days and a key audience leading U.S. and Chinese foreign policymakers to consider uh, in these deliberations. We've been encouraged by uh, Secretary Clinton's remarks stressing the importance of the U.S.-China bilateral relationship and the need to expand the scope of that relationship beyond strictly economic terms. Uh, this expansion this expansion means having more than strategic economic dialogues um, with China and is a particularly powerful statement uh, in a time of global economic crisis. By deliberately broadening the scope of the formal U.S.-China relations uh, relationship, Secretary Clinton is correctly acknowledging that this bilateral relationship is among the most important and complex in the world. Uh, we strive to address one very important part of that expanded agenda uh, and encourage Secretary Clinton, her Chinese colleagues, and international leaders to address the important questions and policy priorities related to China's strategic role in crises of international concern. Um, today and tomorrow, we'll consider the contemporary examples of Chad, uh, Myanmar or Burma, uh, Sudan and Zimbabwe um, to, to further develop this theme. Um, we'll begin shortly with a broad consideration of Chinese foreign policy, which our speakers will address, um, and consider some fundamental questions about Chinese political philosophy, foreign policy priorities, and China's evolving role as an assertive global player. Uh, next, our expert panelists will consider the internal dynamics of the crises that this conference is considering. Uh, international actors aside, it is important to understand the indigenous roots and context of these complex emergencies before considering where international actors eff and efforts to resolve these crises come into play. Uh, this panel will look uh, out from in and begin to consider the role that China is playing in these cases. It's been a busy time in all the crisis areas we are considering. Uh, Zimbabwean opposition leader Morgan Shangarai has just been sworn in as prime minister of a new unity government in Zimbabwe, just as the third ranking member of his party was arrested by Zimbabwean security forces. Rumors that the International Criminal Court's pretrial chamber has decided to issue an arrest warrant for Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir surfaced last week, though the world awaits a formal announcement. And UN envoy Ibrahim Gambari, who was, who was slated to join us for this conference, sends his regrets as he extends his current mission and efforts to mediate the ongoing crisis in Myanmar or Burma. Our third and final panel of the day today will address the nature and multiple motivations for China's activities in these particular countries. Throughout the day, we expect to be confronted with the enormous challenges and sensitivities um, accompanying these cases. Uh, as a basic example of the inflammatory nature of the politics of these crises, even the name used to refer to one of our cases, Myanmar or Burma, is contested and considered a statement of political affiliation. You may notice that we have taken pains to refer to this country by both names in our printed materials and we'll try to continue to do so in our remarks as well. 
Um, though I expect that the participants in this conference hold very different positions on the questions we will address, and we can anticipate lively debates on these subjects, I would like us to begin uh, this morning with a very clear articulation of our common, uh, of our common ground. We're here today to consider the evolving dynamics uh, related to the international response to some of the most vexing and tragic humanitarian crises in the world today. Um, we approach these questions with a sense of common purpose and desire to unpack the inherent complexities involved in these cases in order to capitalize on our opportunities to alleviate suffering, excuse me, suffering and diffuse explosive situations for the betterment of the people subject to these crises and the advancement of global peace and security. Uh, from the U.S. perspective, we also enter this discussion with an understanding that U.S. actions in the world are far from perfect and that the United States has not always managed to master the task of balancing its own interests, power, and desire to build a more secure and free global community. Following the conclusion of our public program this afternoon, participants in our conference will engage in a closed-door working session in, in which these themes and challenges will be debated and considered in greater detail. These conversations will drive forward the work of identifying commonalities and differences in interpreting uh, China's role in these cases and the world more broadly that will begin today during our public program. The working sessions will also tee up our final panel tomorrow beginning at 11 a.m. on the policy agenda moving forward, an important opportunity to report back from working sessions and hear from leading thinkers on such foreign policy questions. We conclude with a unique treat the opportunity to hear from Ambassador Richard Williamson, who until quite recently served as the U.S. Special Envoy to Sudan. We anticipate that he will have much to say and many insights to share on this topic as well. Please refer to your program throughout the conference for more information. In addition to Ambassador Gambari, who I mentioned would have liked to be here, I want to acknowledge gratefully two other individuals who, due to events beyond our control, had hoped to but are unable to join us for this conference. Um, Ambassador Princeton Lyman of the Council on Foreign Relations sends his regrets to this audience because of a personal emergency. He's also been a uh, loyal and, and appreciated member of our advisory board. Eleanor Susulu, a prominent Zimbabwean activist, is also unable to attend today as a result of the tenuous and challenging political situation in Zimbabwe right now, um, which is just one indication of the challenging circumstances in the countries we will be considering over the next two days. And I'm almost done, so I'll sort of let the people you've come to hear speak speak in a moment. But I also want to take a moment um, to thank the many, many people who have helped in the effort to organize this conference. Um, please forgive me in advance if I leave anyone out. But first, to begin with our generous sponsors of this conference, the Associated Students of Stanford University, the Freeman Spogli Institute, the Center for International Security and Cooperation, the Walter H. Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center, uh, Campus Progress, the Progr Program on Global Justice, the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education and Student Affairs, uh, the ASSU Speakers Bureau, International Comparative Area Studies, Stanford Center on International Conflict and Negotiation, African Studies, uh, Feminist Studies, Interpersonary Studies in the Humanities, and the International Relations, Political Science, Cultural and Social Anthropology, International Policy Studies, Philosophy, and Public Policy Departments. It's taken a lot to put this conference together, but uh, we're glad to have you all here. Um, I also want to thank our supportive and insightful advisory board, uh, which includes Stanford professors Larry Diamond, uh, Nick Hope, Alice Miller, and John Lewis, uh, and Princeton Lyman of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Joseph of Northwestern University, John Cam of the Dewey Hua Foundation, Gail Smith of the Center for American Progress, and Erica Downs of the Brookings Institution. In addition to all of the participants in our conference, we should also thank Professor Dan Snyder, our moderator for the first panel, uh, Nancy Howe, Nikki Kalastis, Amanda Crowell, uh, Kristen Acevedo, Belinda Burns, Mary Ellen Harworth, uh, and, Ro and Roger Winkleman for the advice and assistance they have provided throughout the conference planning process. 
And finally, I want to thank, um, and I promise I'm almost done, um, the, the hearty group of students that have worked on this conference and put so much effort into it. Uh, this team includes Bimo El-Gamal, uh, Kate O'Connor, Siddhartha Oza, Kiefer Katowicz, Cindy Guan, Esther Kang, Sam Lee, uh, Jessica Talbert, and Kevin Su. And lastly, to the three other members of the executive committee, Emma Cobert, Ariel Kapoor, and Alice Bosley, I'd like to offer my sincere gratitude for your work as well. Um, last week, during her first public remarks as Secretary of State, Secretary Clinton told the Asia Society in New York that she leaves for Asia ready to deliver a message about America's desire for more rigorous and persistent commitment and engagement, ready to work with our leaders in Asia. On China's increasingly influential role in the world, she said, it is in our interest to work harder to build on areas of common concern and shared opportunities. She went on to encourage this work in pr the private sector, in academia, in labor and the professions, in non-governmental organizations, urging us to commit ourselves to providing the kind of outreach and responsiveness, understanding and commitment that will lead not just to better understanding, but positive actions. With this charge, I will thank you once again for joining us and for your patience with this introduction. Uh, invite you to probe at these provocative questions over the next two days and make contributions of your own during the question and answer sessions. Uh, and now, Kevin Su will introduce the panelists for the policy agenda, uh, for the China's foreign policy panel. Um, good morning, everyone. So this panel will be moderated by Professor Dan Snyder. Professor Snyder is the Associate Director for Research at Stanford University's Walter H. Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center. He currently directs the center's project on nationalism and regionalism and the Divided Memories and Reconciliation Project, a three-year comparative study of the formation of historical memory in East Asia. He's a former foreign affairs columnist of the San Jose Mercury News. Uh, Snyder's writings have appeared in many publications, including the New Republic, National Review, the Far Eastern Economic Review, Time, International Herald Tribune, Financial Times, Dallas Morning News, and the Sacramento Bee. Snyder is a member of the Pacific Council on International Policy, the West Coast affiliate of the Council on Foreign Relations. Professor Jin Tanrong um, will speak first on this panel. Professor Jin is, the, is a professor at the School of International Studies and School of Public Administration, as well as the Deputy Director at the Center for American Studies at Renmin <coughs> University of China. He's also the Deputy Director of the Beijing Pacific Institute for International Strategy Studies. He was trained in political science and received his PhD from Peking University. His intellectual interests include studies of the U.S. Congress, intergovernmental relations in America, civil society and democracy, and Sino-U.S. relations. Next, Professor Don Kaiser will offer his remarks. Uh, Professor Kaiser retired from the U.S. State Department in December 2004 after a 32-year career. He had been a member of the Senior Foreign Service since 1990 and held Washington-based ambassadorial-level assignments from 1998 to 2004. Throughout his career, he focused on U.S. policy toward East Asia, particularly China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, and the Korean Peninsula. Fluent in Chinese and professionally conversant in Japanese, Russian, and French, he served three tours at the American Embassy in Beijing, two tours at the American Embassy in Tokyo, and almost a dozen years in relevant domestic assignments. Professor Kaiser is the Pantech Fellow at Shorenstein A Park. Um, Professor Yang Baoyun rounds off our first panel. Professor Yang received his PhD in Far Eastern Studies Far Eastern Asian Studies at Paris University, and he's a professor of, at the Institute of Afro-Asian Studies at Peking University. He's also the Deputy Director of the Center for Asia-Pacific Studies at the uh, Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Peking University. He's the Vice President of the Association for Southeast Asian Studies in China, and is Associate Member of Le Cinema in France. He specializes Chinese in Chinese foreign policy, especially in relations to neighboring and developing countries. 
So without further ado, I offer the stage to Professor Snyder and his panel to begin our conference. Thanks. All right, Mike. My job here is to be the moderator of this panel and to give you the time to listen to these very learned gentlemen and then to have a discussion afterwards. I just want to say a few words, which is to really, uh, I've been working with the students who've been involved in organizing this conference uh, for a long time, it seems. Uh, if I recall the first meeting I had with Seth, it seems it was quite a while ago. And I, I want to say that they've worked tremendously hard, not only to organize this conference in a logistical sense, but really to think through uh, the issues, I think they've changed in many ways uh, how they wanted to approach this issue. Uh, they've, uh, they've, I think, taken a, a dispassionate approach, an attempt to really understand uh, China's foreign policy and uh, the complexity of dealing with the issues, the particular issues we're going to deal with, and I want to uh, give them a little bit of praise for the really hard work that they've done, and I'm sure that it will be a productive time that we'll have over the next day and a half. So, without further ado, uh, Professor Jin, you're on. Uh, thank you, Professor Snyder. Uh, I'd li uh, like also to express my gratitude to, to the, uh, the leading group of this uh, China in the 21st century. Uh, and, uh, uh, today, uh, I organized my uh, uh, talk. Uh, just follow my the instruction uh, of uh, Says <laughs> Silverman, uh, but I, uh, what I talk a little beyond uh, the homework uh, based on your logic, um, and also thanks uh, for having sh Kevin Xu. Uh, we keep contact uh, contacts all the times. Um, okay, I will uh, uh, shift to my uh, talk. Um, uh, although the topic uh, uh, in this panel. Uh, is uh, the theory and practice uh, of China's foreign policy, but I, I should stress uh, on the practice uh, practice side. Uh, as all we know, uh, China and the states build the same uh, uh, culture uh, commonality that is pragmatism. Right? China as a country always driven by events, not by driven by man-made theories. Um, so. Um, I will mainly talking about the practice uh, of Chinese foreign policy. But having said that, I, I will start um, uh, by introducing uh, two uh, slogan, policy slogan of ch uh, China's uh, foreign policy. One is that uh, during Jiang Zemin's year, the policy brand is so-called the theory of peaceful development. And this uh, so-called theory is try to respond to the concern from outside the world on this issue. What kind of road China will take in modernization? And the so-called peaceful development meaning uh, stress on this point, that China will not follow uh, the road uh, taken by Germany and uh, Japan a century ago. Um, China will take a road uh, economy first and stress on its own market, uh, its own resources. So that's the slogan, pol uh, policy brand or policy slogan during Jiang Zemin years, try to answer the question, what kind of road China will take. And then comes the, the incumbent leader, Hu Jintao year. And his policy brand is so-called right? harmonious world theory. And uh, this new uh, policy brand try to answer another question. 
That is, what kind of world China want? And uh, the answer is harmonious world. And uh, what it means, we don't know. <laughs> so uh, I will start by this. Um, then um, my first point uh, is that the background of China's uh, foreign policy. Um, the first background is that um, how the self-identity, uh, self-defined identity of China. Um, with the power growth and the, the uh, interests extended in abroad, China, China's foreign policy become more uh, active. Right? That's one fact. And the mentality of Chinese leaders become more confident. But uh, uh, the dominant perception, self-perception of China is still as the following. One, China is a developing country, still a developing country. Second, China is a regional power, not a global power. Third, China's country um, insists on uh, socialism principle, that is the stress on equality, the value of equality. But based on a market economy, politically socialism, eco economically capitalism, that's China, very contradictory. And uh, uh, the fourth point is um, um, the GDP uh, of China now uh, grows fastly. Right? Now China ranking number three in the world, surpassed Japan in 2007. But the per capita is still very low. Per capita of China, something around 100. The ranking is still around 100. And the fifth self-perception is that for China, the, the country as big as China, just like states, the real security challenge always coming from within China, not from outside world. Right? Just like states, in this world, China can only be defeated by China itself, not by the any other countries. Right. So that's the uh, self-perception. Uh, As for the objective of China's foreign policy, um, generally speaking, China's foreign policy is very, uh, how to say, defensive. Uh, its policy goal is just submissive to its internal policy goal. Um, and if we go to detail, uh, we can find uh, two specific goals. One is to serve China's modernization, to ser meaning serve China's economic growth. Second, to prevent the possible Taiwan separation, the Jude separation. Um, so uh, that's the policy goal. Um, personally, I tend to think this policy goal will remain uh, at least uh, before 2020. Um, in China, there is a very popular term called uh, the window. There exists a window of opportunity, uh, a strategic opportunity. Uh, and people tend to think this window of opportunity will be remained until 2020. And the reason is very simple. Before 2020, China's population will keep growing just because uh, the legacy of uh, Mao Zedong's population policy, right? Um, so before that, before that year, 2020, China's grow, uh, population will, will keep growing and uh, the 
the, the market uh, expansion will be inevitable. But uh, beyond that, China's population will stop growing. Uh, it's very possible at the year of 2020, China's demographic uh, map, just like uh, Japan in 1990. China will become a very aged society. Um, so before that, China's uh, foreign policy will be very submissive to its grow growth within China. Um, okay, um, and uh, the third part uh, of my talk is that uh, the approach of China's uh, foreign policy. Why is that uh, the elites within China fully recognize this fact that China benefit a lot from the globalization in the past two decades. China benefit a lot from the current international regime. So China will not destroy the current regime, uh, although its uh, power keep growing. China will participate this regime. Uh, China fully appreci appreciate the value of interdependence. Uh, and China fully will the new development in security uh, area, that is, traditional security challenge combined with non-traditional security uh, uh, affairs. And uh, China tried to establish itself as a responsible stakeholder, a responsible power. And in this process, China will take so-called economy first strategy and try to de-ideologicalization. Um, so that's the approach. Um, and. Uh, Perhaps I should stop. Uh, 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 oh, finally, I will introduce the main components uh, of China's global strategy and will uh, the so-called crisis uh, uh, we will discuss later will this uh, located today. Uh, China's foreign policy composed of five parts. First is so-called big power diplomacy. In this part, U.S. in particular, China's big power diplomacy referring to EU. Japan, Indian, Russia, and the United States, but the U.S. enjoying a particular uh, concern. Second is neighborhood diplomacy, referring to the four sub-regions surrounding China, Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, and Central Asia. And in this part, Northeast Asia enjoying particular concern. Third is so-called developing country diplomacy, referring to Africa, Latin America, and uh, Middle East. And in this part, uh, Africa enjoys some particular concern. The fourth part of uh, China's global strategy is so-called multilateral diplomacy. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, in this part, uh, referring to two levels of multilateral uh, activities. One is global level, UNWTO, World Bank, uh, something like that. And then the so-called regional cooperation, six-party talk, China, ASEAN, FTA, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, etc. Uh, and in this part, uh, uh, I pay more attention to the newly developed so-called regionalism. And the last one is so-called soft power building. Uh, China fully aware the gap between China's everlasting growing hard power and uh, the uh, lag how to say, lag behind uh, soft power. So China tried to do something to improve its image abroad. Uh, let's say to have, how to say, 300 Confucius Institute established abroad, 
right? Um, and uh, then, will the four countries we will discuss uh, uh, located in China's foreign policy? Uh, for those three African countries, they located at the third category, developing country diplomacy. Uh, Myanmar enjoying two positions. One is neighborhood diplomacy, another is, is developing country diplomacies. So, um, so my conclusion is that uh, all these countries, they c you can find the position in China's global strategy, but uh, not as high, that high as people imagined. <laughs> I should say, up to date, the, fr the first priority is still United States. Okay, I stop here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Professor Wong. Point, because you left us hanging with something rather intriguing, but I'm sure we can return to it. Don. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. I'd like to echo the others in expressing appreciation for the invitation to be here. Thank you, Seth, the, uh, the token male among all those highly competent uh, females, I notice. Uh, thank you. And political commissar Kang, thank you for keeping us on time. I'll be certain to look the other way so the little reminders of time remaining don't uh, intrude on my consciousness too much. Um, thank you, too, Professors Jin and Yang, for your very cogent, uh, very clear presentation of Chinese foreign policy. As one who sat in government for all those years, I must say it's been a pleasure to deal with Chinese colleagues, Chinese professors and think tank officials in particular over all the years. And it's even more of a pleasure to today be with you and to be able to speak the truth. Uh, because in the years of government, of course, we were obliged to speak more or less in terms of our policy line of the moment. Today, no longer a policy official, I can say something closer to the truth perhaps, but still animated maybe by experiences in the government. So uh, with regard to the very fine presentations given by the two professors, I think our own perspective, the U.S. government perspective and my own personal perspective would be not different. I think we see the same kind of evolution, the same kind of trends, the same kind of influences in Chinese foreign policy, as you've, as you've just heard. So what I'll try to do then, uh, heeding the homework and the guidance of Comrade Seth, is to give you the U.S. Uh, optic or the U.S. perspective on these same issues. Let me start by uh, attacking a straw man, which is always fun to do. And the straw man is simply that one often hears that uh, China is mysterious, China is opaque, China lacks transparency. We cannot possibly understand China's motives. Um, yes and no would be my answer to that because China, like the United States, has myriad interests. They're constantly evolving. There must be a balance of competing interests and influences by the Chinese government. And the international situation itself is dynamic as the relations among powers are. So this certainly makes for a lack of total confident predictability. Having said that, however, I have often found China to be no more opaque than the United States, for example, in its policy, if you know where to look. And for me, at least, 
the modern era begins, as both of the professors have noted in their remarks, perhaps with Deng Xiaoping. I focus in particular on Deng Xiaoping's uh, famous, if not quite public, so-called 24-character slogan. Uh, Deng's 24-character slogan, which I'll not repeat here in toto, really sets out the policy line for the contemporary period. And what Deng said summed up is something like, uh, let's look at events calmly, uh, let's be dispassionate, let's excel at keeping a low profile, and let us not take the lead. Pretty clear, really. This is an acknowledgment that China uh, has great assets, it has potential influence, but it still needs, above all, to develop its economy. And as it's developing its domestic economy, it is not a rational thing to do internationally to take on other powers, if possible. Where interests collide, the best approach is to try to find an accommodation of those interests. Certainly, as an American official and diplomat for many years, uh, I can say that we had many spirited conversations with the Chinese, but in the end, we usually found a way to reconcile those differences and find an accommodation. Further, if you look at the published writings uh, by the Chinese leadership, you'll find rather clear articulation of their policy perspective at any given stage. Look in particular, we don't have time to do it now, at the white paper issued by the State Council in 2005 on China's peaceful development. This lays out in some detail precisely the points that Professor Jin has given. Above all, economic development, uh, harmonious approach to the world, uh, strike a balance in competing interests and move ahead, all things that China does to serve the needs of its own economic national development. You can look also to the same kind of document in China that one would refer to in the United States, defense publications, defense white papers. Uh, the Chinese defense white paper in 2006, for example, repeated in subsequent years, has laid out fairly clearly, fairly concisely, China's strategic vision, and in particular, China's challenges. In that white paper of 2006, you will see that the Chinese, quite candidly, have acknowledged that the United States represents both a desired and necessary partner in much of what China does in the world, but also, frankly, uh, a country that can and has posed a threat to China and its interests. So there needs to be a balance. Uh, the United States white papers out of our Defense Department, our national strategies, refer to a hedging strategy. The Chinese, in fact, have increasingly begun to refer explicitly to the need to hedge against events and circumstances that can arise, whether from the United States or even in the future from some other constellation of powers, Russia, India, even Vietnam are out there. But even more, what you see highlighted in the Chinese official and open publications is a sense that China increasingly is a nation with international interests. It has an international role to play. Uh, the term that Bob Zellick first coined, uh, responsible stakeholder, is one that initially was looked at askance by the Chinese, but I think later embraced 
as China joined the United States and coming to understand this is a good thing. It basically means China uh, has won its rightful place in the international community. The United States, other countries acknowledge that it is a great power, that it does have legitimate interest, it does have a role to play. So all of this is out there. It's part of the Chinese strategic calculus. It's part of the United States strategic calculus. So there is constantly a review process going on among national leaders, national thinkers, strategists, academics as to how we can all best play this role internationally. Um, has China uh, altered its view in some way? Has China begun to behave differently? If so, how does that affect the United States' interests? How does that affect uh, the kind of topics that this conference has been set up to address? Of China, uh, in a word, has indeed evolved as it has become acknowledged as a great power uh, among nations. China has increasingly taken on greater responsibilities, and from the United States' perspective, these are positive actions. For example, in the United Nations, uh, until 1988, 1989, China avoided uh, any kind of involvement in international peacekeeping operations, any kind of involvement in what previously had been deemed uh, interference in the internal affairs of other nations. Beginning, however, in about 1989-1990, China rethought all this and signed on to uh, a new concept in which China began to participate more openly in United Nations authorized, United Nations sponsored peacekeeping operations around the world. At first starting from a rather small uh, point, uh, providing medical, providing technical expertise in Cambodia, but gradually building on that so that today, if you look at the statistics, China among the nations of the world, frankly, exceeds the United States in its contribution to United Nations sponsored peacekeeping operations. Granted, the United States does this kind of thing in a different way and makes its contributions. China has insisted on having UN, uh, UN um, sponsorship of what it does but what it's done has been quite positive, and you can see uh, the graph of China's evolving role internationally going up, 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 up. All of this the United States embraces, applauds, hails. Uh, we in particular have applauded China's role in African peacekeeping missions. Uh, just a year ago, China uh, took the step that many had deemed unlikely of sending a significant contingent to Sudan. Uh, China has found that with this kind of action hailed by many in the international community also comes skepticism and complaints from some. You know, what is China's true goal? Is China simply trying to provide its uh, economic interest in Sudan or is China trying to do something for the larger benefit of the international community? These issues are out there. They're issues similar to the ones the United States and various Western countries have confronted over the years. So it's out there, it's something that we need to look at, and I think as we get into the working sessions here, we will look at it in terms of China's role, the United States' role, the UN role in places like Myanmar, in various African countries. 
fundamentally, the United States and China, I think, have been able to cooperate as partners in most of these endeavors because we do not have a fundamental conflict of interest. In fact, the United States has rather applauded uh, the new activism, the new role that China has played internationally. Uh, we think there is room to expand that. There's room to expand our cooperation in this because fundamentally we are seeking to address the same issues, uh, the same issues of um, internal conflict, uh, the same issues of uh, legitimate access without destructive competition for oil and other resources around the world, and further, I think, some attention to uh, what the United States calls human rights dilemmas, human rights challenges. China generally does not use that same kind of language, but often acts as though it shares our basic perception on this. So there's a lot more to talk about. There is a very rich agenda. Fundamentally, it's a good news story, I think, in terms of the lines on the graph. China and the United States have cooperated internationally. There is ample room to continue cooperating. There is no reason for the two nations to be in conflict either as nations or in the international arena because fundamentally we share a view that while not identical has many common features. Thank you very much. And that uh, I think uh, both the all the presentations were, I think, gave, a, gave us a, together a great overview on, and, and raised, I think, also some good questions. Uh, I'm not, I, I hope that uh, we can use the question period time now to uh, explore some things. I, I, I may intervene myself, but I'd rather open the uh, discussion to the floor at this point and let you uh, continue the discussion from here. And there are some microphones, so please wait until the mic reaches you and raise your hand. Join us. If you'd use the mic, that'd be great. Thank you. Through the years, uh, through the years, Taiwan has somewhat poked its finger in China's eye, and they've come very close to having major altercations. Would you talk about where that relationship is today, and what's China's long-term goal? Happily uh, to say, now the cross-strait relations get dramatically improved in the past uh, nine months since uh, Ma Ying-jeou, uh, uh, how to say, gave his inaugural address. Um, and uh, I tend to think in the coming uh, four or eight years, uh, the situation will get further improvement. Um, on mainland part, uh, the good news is that uh, in the 17th Party Congress, President Hu Jintao put forward a new uh, strategy that is said um, before the uh, Taiwan election in the, in the last March, right, the policy goal is to stop radical 
Taiwan separation, separatist movement. Uh, and uh, after that, mainland will not shift to seeking reunification. He put reunification as a policy goal someday later. And uh, between this period, stop separation, unif peaceful unification, we will experience a very long time of so-called peaceful development. You know, so that's a new idea. That means uh, Taiwan enjoying more, how to say, free time. Uh, <laughs> um, personally, I tend to think, technically speaking, if mainland is determined to take over Taiwan, we, will, we can do that and finish that goal in two days, 40, 48 hours. Uh, we can do that, no problem. Even the United States step in, uh, we can achieve that. But uh, how to say, strategically speaking, speaking, we 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 try we do want to have a peaceful reunification. So the long-term goal is very clear: we will have a peaceful reunification. But uh, in the coming ten or two decades, uh, ten years or two, twenty years, I think uh, we will have a peaceful development. And the goal in this period is try to win the heart of Taiwanese people. Thank you. Sorry? Follow up with Larry asked. When China provides uh, official development aid as a, as a donor, uh, to what degree, what are the factors that China thinks about in providing ODA? And is uh, our questions of uh, political freedom, human rights, uh, internal repression, governance, issues of governance, uh, factors in determining decisions about providing aid? Um, I'd uh, like to say in this way, uh, actually there is a big gap, collective gap of perception between outside world and the people within China. Uh, the outside world consider China is now uh, a powerful country, uh, should be a big donator <laughs> of aid. But uh, people within China uh, tend to think China is still a very poor country, uh, especially average people. Uh, uh, something relating with the problem of China's uh, development strategy. Uh, uh, we have some problem in uh, income, uh, uh, what I say, uh, gap, right? And uh, for many uh, average people, they, 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 they benefit much less than they should be. <laughs> So they, they lack of money in their pocket. So, so because of their uh, 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 individual problem, uh, people sincerely think China is a poor country. China should get a donation, not contribute the donation. So uh, last uh, September, uh, when our Ministry of Commerce uh, declared that China will exempt uh, uh, the debts of uh, 39, at least developed countries. You see the overwhelming critics in our internet. You know, China's netizens are very powerful today. We have over 300, 300 million netizens, much more than that of the United States. China has owns number one uh, amount of netizens in t today's world, right? And for those netizens, they just uh, feel angry 
China is so poor, why we should uh, donate some money abroad? We, we want the money, right? We, we want the money, money, go my home. Uh, so, uh, so that's a starting point as for China's aid policy. We have a gap, perception gap. And uh, oh, 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 we, we should know the construction, uh, constructivism theory imported from the United States are very popular. Uh, Alexander Winter, uh, Peter Kahnstein get more audience. Robert Javis get much more audience in China than in the United States. <laughs> and uh, and uh, for constructivism, the perception does matter, right? And the perception, as I mentioned, in China is that the dominant perception of average people is that China is still a very poor country. We are not ready to donate money abroad. So that's the fact. And then uh, as for China's uh, limited but uh, increased uh, donation uh, or aid to other countries, um, I think uh, the uh, focus is the efficiency of this aid to the economic development in that countries, in host countries. Uh, if your aid not leads to the upgrade of a living standard, um, we think that aid is not so meaningful, right? You put a lot of uh, beautiful terms, but you help nothing to the local people. That's self-cheating behavior, right? So that's ridiculous, so-called so -called postmodern ideology. And uh, there are too much uh, postmodern uh, ideology exists in today's world. That hurts the world, not help the world. That's my personal opinion. Morality, of course, is in the eye of the beholder, I guess would be the quick comment. And certainly on the US side, we would have a different definition of that in theory and practice. Uh, looking at what the Chinese have done in recent years, certainly uh, there is a rich agenda of discussion points for U.S. and Chinese officials. We, we do not agree on many things. We do agree on many other things. But if you look at the particular countries and issues that are the primary topic of this conference, certainly there is ample room for discussion between the United States, China, and others of uh, specific Chinese assistance policies in places like Sudan, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, the old Zaire, and so forth and so on. Uh, I think there is a wide perception in the United States, and particularly within the, within the community of NGOs and those who focus on human rights, that uh, of the various factors cited by Professor Yang interests uh, trump morality, at least as the U.S. sees it, and perhaps so they do. Uh, having said that, one can also note that the Chinese policies seem to be evolving slightly. Uh, there are subtle differences in what the Chinese are doing today as compared with what they did previously. In 2008, China agreed to send, again, under UN peacekeeping auspices, blue-hatted engineering troops and others to Sudan. Uh, an interesting move on the part of China, which previously had articulated a policy, vision, or principle of non-interference in the sovereign affairs of other countries. And yet, in these circumstances, they did that. 
interesting to assess that, and there will be time to do that later. The cynics will say they did that simply to protect their investment in Sudan's oil and other uh, resources. The less cynical will say that China is perhaps beginning to, at least under the UN umbrella, accommodate a more international concept of the way in which assistance monies and relationships should be deployed and managed. Uh, Zimbabwe is another case. Um, there, China's interest, I think, has largely been a strategic interest in minerals, platinum in particular. Uh, here, I think the United States has had particular problems with China's policies of seeming support for the Mugabe regime in Zimbabwe, come what may, a nation with over 90 percent unemployment, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and yet China has continued to supply assistance to Zimbabwe, including uh, a much-reported shipment of weapons a couple of years ago, which, depending on the report you believe, either did or did not reach Zimbabwe eventually. So that kind of thing is an issue uh, in the dialogue between the United States and China, quiet dialogue is an issue in uh, perception and management of perceptions. Nonetheless, I would say as one who has been there over the years that China's position, I think, is discernibly evolving, albeit from a U.S. perspective incrementally and in very slow increments at that. Uh, take another example, which we'll deal with in more detail later, but Myanmar or Burma. Uh, in 2007, uh, in the context of the Saffron Revolution or whatever it was that took place in the streets of Yangon or Rangoon, uh, the Chinese, of course, have a strategic interest uh, and a very well-developed relationship with Myanmar in that country. At the same time, for the first time, the Chinese did say words in public uh, about the need for Burma or Myanmar to follow its own path towards democratization. Uh, some would say too little, too late. Others would say perhaps one small step for mankind, one small step for China toward embracing a more international perspective on uh, developmental and societal requirements in that country. Again, seeing John Cam sitting in front of me here, who's been dealing with human rights for over two decades, and very successfully at that, I will uh, not by any means seek to preempt what he may say later, but I will simply applaud what he's done because he's done it skillfully, quietly, uh, with a fine sense of the cultural, the societal, and the political realities within China. Uh, so I think all of us who were in the United States government would look uh, with great favor on the kind of effort that uh, Mr. Cam and people like him have undertaken over the years in trying to expand uh, the area of commonality or common perspective between the United States and China on an array of human rights matters. Thank you. In the front here. Could you bring the mic up? Thank you. Instead of being the issuer of the world's reserve currency, you never have to say thank you. Um, as we know, there's considerable concern in certain quarters in the United States about the uh, rate and scope of Chinese military growth in recent years. And I'd be interested in the panelists' thoughts on whether the Chinese government takes into account in its foreign policy calculations 
the impact that this has on neighbors, on uh, large powers, and whether it's consistent with the other kinds of principles that you've been talking about today that, that under, underlie Chinese foreign policy, for example, peaceful development, harmonious uh, world, um, security begins at home and not, uh, security comes from inside and not outside, um, or whether military growth in China is simply uh, something that is happening inevitably uh, and, and is not taken into account in foreign policy. question um, how to say uh, come again uh, I should say perception does matter um, the perception within China is that uh, China is the only major player in the world uh, still facing the separation Taiwan issue right so because of that we have to speed up China's military modernization in order to, to, to prevent the, uh, the dual independence of that island. So that's a widespread uh, perception within China. Uh, be just because Taiwan issue, China need to speed up uh, military modernization. Um, frankly speaking, uh, Taiwan's capability, military capability is not an issue. The real issue is the intervention of the United States. Right? So we have to face that intervention. China's goal is owns enough capability to stop that intervention. Um, so if the states can help China in some way to unification, then <laughs> uh, we will slow down our military build up. But uh, as long as Taiwan issue exists, China will never stop this, this pace. Right? Uh, we know uh, there is some uh, impact on the uh, perception outside world about China's uh, military build-up. But uh, from Chinese perspective, there is no contradiction exist at all. Uh, for external world, we do want to have a better tie. China do want to have a, a more uh, positive role. But uh, Taiwan is an internal issue, and we will resolve it uh, by ourselves our own resources. And the one resource is, is military build-up. Thank you. We have time for one more question, if I could. I'll, I'll cut off the yeah. panelist response just so we can add Tom in the back there. Thank you. Well, it was Professor Gene uh, who raised it, but it's a question for anybody. It has to do with the meaning of the five-fold uh, characterization of Chinese diplomacy and foreign policy, dealing with the big powers, which is the power base, dealing with the neighbors, which is the geographic base, dealing with developing countries, a preference for multilateral approaches, and, and finally the soft power. What's the operational meaning of that? The, the, the dealing with the big powers take priority over dealing with the neighborhood and the smaller ones? Does a preference for multilateral approaches take preference over the bilateral relationships with U.S., Japan, and Russia? And so that it, you, you laid it out as an important concept, and it is, but I'm not sure what it means. 
how to say, my uh, personal opinion is that to understand China, we, c we, we should uh, jump out any specific discipline. <laughs> China is very hard to understand by any discipline. Um, and China's uh, behavior is always uh, multi-driven. Uh, so what I can say is just describe the scenario. And, uh, but uh, I doubt uh, whether anybody can find a very systematic theory framework to, to explain that. We would just describe what did. Then uh, if you try to find a, a very systematic, uh, consistent uh, systematic theory, it is very hard. Um, so my answer is that uh, what you, your, your, your impression is just right. Coexist many uh, logics in China's global strategy in the same times. That's my answer. Thank you. Um, I think with that, uh, let me close the session and thank the three panelists for really, I think, setting the stage for, I think, the subsequent discussions that we're going to have on uh, specific issues and on uh, further discussion of Chinese foreign policy. And I think that lots of questions have been put on the table, and, and uh, they were very eloquent in, I think, giving us a framework to proceed with the rest of the day. So please join me in thanking them. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.